Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 331st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jake Northrup. Jake is the founder of Experience Your Wealth, an independent REA based in Bristol, Rhode Island, that advises 78 client households with a three-person team supporting nearly $700,000 of ongoing revenue. What's unique about Jake, though, is how he's been able to grow to $700,000 of revenue in just four years since launching from scratch. And now he realized that because of how his rapid growth was going to impact future capacity and time constraints, he'd need to hire employees sooner rather than later and decided to hire an associate advisor in just the second year after launching the firm before he even had $200,000 of revenue. In this episode, we talk in depth about why Jake decided to hire an associate and then a lead advisor within the first few years of what was originally intended to be a solo practice because he felt his practice was just too completely dependent on him. How Jake and his team implement a four-meeting financial planning process that includes creating a life planning timeline using MindMeister to develop a mind map to visualize the client's goals, and then creating a client dashboard and Meister task where clients can track their progress as well as mark off tasks that need to be completed to move them along on their journey. And why, despite being a CFA charter holder, Jake now outsources investment management to First Ascent, for which clients pay an entirely separate fee in addition to his own because it allows Jake both to simplify compliance by not managing investments in-house and takes away the cost pressure of having to hire a separate employee just to manage clients' investment portfolios. We also talk about how Jake attributes much of his fast-growth success to launching with an $8,000 website that focused on his values-based niche of travel-loving young families that don't buy into the traditional 9-to-5, work-to-65 concept, and then leverage Google reviews to enhance his SEO. The way Jake stuck to and didn't compromise his niche from the very start when he launched, but was more flexible about the financial criteria of prospects early on and only started setting higher fee minimums after the first year in business. And why Jake and his team not only create long-term financial plans for their clients, but also focus on a 10-year vision to help his younger travel-loving clientele start achieving more of the immediate goals so they're more likely to retain his clients by feeling like they're making near-term financial planning progress. And be certain to listen to the end where Jake shares how he struggled over the years with perfectionism, control, and a fear of failure that was leading him to remain a solo advisor and ultimately realized that by focusing on those issues, he was potentially missing out on more. How Jake invested heavily to get his CFA early in his career, but in retrospect wishes he spent more time learning about life planning and money scripts. And why Jake feels more fulfilled in how he consciously built and staffed his practice because it allows him to have more flexibility and time to spend with his wife and start a family while also creating an environment for his team to thrive and be present in their family's lives and helps his clients enjoy their money and pursue their passions instead of waiting for retirement as well. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jake Northrop. Welcome, Jake Northrup, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be on. And thank you and everyone else that's been involved up to this point in terms of sharing their stories. It's been uh, really impactful on my career. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. And I, I hope we get to talk about some cool stuff today that that helps other folks' careers move forward. We'll, we'll, we'll pay it forward a little bit as we go. It's me. You, you, 
you have a really interesting uh, journey, and you know, I know we'll be getting into it more on the uh, on the podcast discussion here in a few minutes. But the, this phenomenon of, uh, as I think about, it, just figuring out when you're supposed to hire up to start expanding your team when you start an advisory firm and and like and it actually works. I mean, I feel like there's this uh, challenge when you launch advisory firm. I mean, I think is really true for any business. First, there's the like. You like you jump in wild eyed and excited and like you go do the thing and you tell everybody you know and you put the launch out there and like people give you congratulations and say that's so awesome good for you and then like you get through those initial conversations the first month and then like reality sets in like oh my gosh what have I what have I done for myself like I walked away from my salary and I'm doing this on my own and like people are not beating a path down to my door and like there's this sort of freak out moment that I find that comes for for some advisors a month or two in. And then we kind of like buckle down and say, okay, well, we got to get going and figure this out. So we start grinding and trying to work forward and getting clients and getting revenue going and and all willing, like it, it starts to work and it starts to get to momentum. And then eventually you go from this, like, what have I done to myself moment where you've launched the business and realized like you're starting from scratch and you have to get going to another version of like, wait, what have I done for myself? Like it's starting to work. Like there's a lot, the clients are coming and there's actually a lot of work to do. And like, I had a lot of spare time, like six or 12 months ago. And I don't have so much spare time right now. Cause like there's kind of a lot of clients coming and maybe I need to start thinking about hiring someone and doing something about this, but geez, I was making so little for so long. Like the money's finally getting okay again. I really don't want to go backwards on my income the moment that it starts picking up a little bit. And and I just I know you've lived a version of this, even perhaps on a little bit more of an accelerated pace than than some, because you've had a a pretty fast growth trajectory since you launched just a couple of years ago. And so I just I'm 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 excited to have this conversation and hearing more about how you think about this journey of when do you hire, how much revenue is enough to hire, how do you get comfortable with like I'm finally getting some dollars going and I'm going to go backwards again as you're just like dealing with that hiring reality as a as a business owner. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into it and I think the identity of your business uh it changed at least for me a lot quicker than I was anticipating and I quickly learned that the skills to launch a firm, you know, initiative, control, you know, grit, just like the hard work is completely different than the skills needed to scale a firm, right? And that's delegating, you know, empowering others and training and that's something that I didn't know I wanted to do when I launched Experience Your Wealth, but I think with any new business owner is you start something early days is just make it work, uh, get clients in the door, pay the bills. Hopefully you stop seeing the cash balance go down. And then you get to that point of, oh my God, it's starting to work. Uh, what now? Right. And I'm excited to share a bit about that story. Well, I, I really like just how you framed that up at the start there, that when you, when you initially get started, right, it's just all of that taking initiative, the grit, the perseverance to grind through. I do it because I want the control and autonomy. Uh, right, a, lo- a lot of advisors, most advisors, I find like we don't we don't start independent advisory firms. If you're on that side of the business, like you don't start from scratch as your first job in the business. Most of the time, you start because you worked somewhere else for a period of time. And granted, like some of us like just the resources and the structure that bigger firms provide, and others of us are like, I really kind of marched my own drummer, want to do my own thing my own way. And often like the impetus, particularly for that like cold launch is I want the autonomy, I want the control. So the launch is all about, I've got autonomy and control and I'm bringing the initiative and the grit that I'm going to get through this. And then as you said, like once it starts working, 
the skill sets that you need start to change really quickly because suddenly it is about delegating, training, empowering others. Like suddenly it's about the team that's around you and, and, and actually much less about you, which is really hard either j- at least just to make that change. And even more so if like that's not necessarily what I set out for originally. Like I might, you know, I, I didn't do this so that I could delegate and train people. Like I did it so I could help clients, but apparently now I'm supposed to be learning to delegate and train and have to deal with this. Yep, absolutely. And I think there too, it's the, you know, as you step into having a new business, it's always guessing and, and reevaluating of, hey, I, I love this and I don't like this as much. And, you know, using the E-Myth Revisit, you know, terminology, right, of being a technician, a manager and an entrepreneur. And, you know, which of those do you really feel drawn to initially, right? And I think a lot of people were very, very good technicians. We might want to get in and be that entrepreneur too. And actually what I learned uh, coming in and starting to grow and scale was I actually really, really liked the entrepreneurship and the management more than I liked being an advisor. I think that surprised me. And I still want to be an advisor. I still want to be working with clients. But when I think about the percent of my time and energy that goes to clients versus running the business and training, uh, it's a lot higher now on the running the business and training. And that's something that definitely surprised me because when I started out, I said, I want to work with a certain subset of clients in a unique way and do all of this. And it's just completely changed from there. Well, so I'm I'm fascinated by that by that shift. So just connect us a little more. Like, I guess, like, what did you think the like the job and the vision was going to be, and then when did it start changing into something else? So when I started, uh, I actually, I put together a draft business plan and it was great to still do that, right? I went to a few of my mentors, uh, one in particular, Sean Erickson, I remember he reviewed it in depth and he said, this is great. It's so valuable that you did it and be completely prepared to rip this up and for it to change. And my initial business plan had, I think I had 60 clients or so, about 200K of revenue. And I felt like, you know, at that point, um, you know, there's enough for me financially and I'm, I'm not overwhelmed with clients. I had the lifestyle flexibility as well. Um, and I felt like I would be very happy there, right? And uh, what so, I realized... So I just want to pause on that to understand. It's like 60 clients, 200K of revenue. That that was the vision, right? I'm getting like three or $4,000 of revenue per client. I've got 60 clients. I'm presuming that's a, like I can handle them on my own. So 200K gross and you know your, your net's probably 80% of that, give or take a little with a bit of tech, a bit of website, a bit of office and the rest, but most of that drops the bottom line. And and like that was that was the framework. That like that was the vision. If I can get 60 clients and get that revenue, that lets me live live my lifestyle and do what I want to do. Exactly. And I think it's easy to say that when you haven't reached that goal yet. Um, but then when you start to get there, and I'm not someone I truly believe, and you don't always want to be shifting the goalposts, right? You, you achieve one goal, and then you go to the next one and the next one, and you're never really satisfied. But I think starting out, I didn't want to be too ambitious of, um, I want to grow this to be a five, 10, $20 million firm. I didn't feel like that was aligned with you know my personal values, what my wife and I wanted for our family and other things as well. Um, but as you get get in and you start working with more clients, uh, you just realize what you love and what you don't, right? And for me, it was, I didn't love the prep work for a client meeting. I didn't love some of the in-between. Uh, I actually love the strategy and uh, thinking about how to grow the business and bringing in new clients and doing some of the marketing. And there was a point uh, along the journey, I was about 12 months in, I remember I, I finally took my first you know, three-day weekend off uh, in a year or so. 
And it took me about four days just to get back into it. You know, we are working with a subset of clients, which are young families where their life are, is always changing, right? They're having a new job, they're moving, there's an equity liquid, liquidation event. And to me, I felt like it actually scared me a bit to have this business completely dependent on me. I feel like there are aspects of my business that I could outsource, but I couldn't outsource the client service to my standards. Uh, and so that's where I started to really think about, you know, what is this vision for the firm, right? Going from this solo to potentially a boutique. Um, and that's when I started to open up the idea of hiring actually earlier than I really thought. So I'm, I'm, I want to hear more about just the, this like moment of, I think as you put it, it scared me to have this business completely dependent on me. I mean, was that from a like, if something happens to me, then I'm gone and these clients won't get served? Or is this more in the vein of just, I want to be able to like take a vacation and not have to think about client service while I'm on the vacation because there's literally nobody else to service the clients for me? Like, is it is it just the like, I want to be able to take a vacation ang angle to this? Or was there like a bigger or different, like, I just can't have this business be dependent on me? I think it was definitely both. I felt like I owed it to the clients to ensure that there's a team supporting you as opposed to just me. And uh, especially as I'm hoping, I'm not there yet, but I'm hoping to wander into uh, the joys of, of having kids in the near future. As, and, and I'm sure as, as you know, and many listeners know, um, that just completely shakes up your life, right? You don't have that same time energy to put into your business when you're a new parent than before parenthood, right? Um, so for me, I felt like uh, knowing that that was ahead of me in my life. I really wanted to figure out how could I uh, create this vision for the business to really fit into my life. So the the idea of having 60 clients with liquidation events and things happening in student loan world and moving and changing jobs while also having a one month old that's crying, uh, that scared yeah. me. So I felt like, you know, if I'm able to build a team earlier, uh, I feel like that's more aligned with my longer term vision in terms of what I want. And I felt that, you know, uh, clients would be better served as well. So, so where, like, where was the business, I guess, revenue wise, when you're having this realization and thinking like, maybe, maybe I need to hire another advisor to support. So it's, so it's not just me and I can take my vacations and clients have some longer term stability. It was about year two in and to paint the picture in terms of where our firm started. So, you know, we started in November 2019 from scratch, uh, no clients. Um, so no one came with me, no revenue, no AUM. Um, at the end of year one, uh, we had $81,000 of revenue. So we had 17 ongoing clients at that time. And we did work with 25 one-time plans. Um, we don't do that anymore, but it was a good way starting when you have a lot of time. Um, so, year wait, wait, let me understand that just in year one. So you actually cleared $81,000 of revenue that came in, or you are like at an $81,000 run, run rate by the end of that year because of the clients that were on board? Yep. Good question. It was 81 for the year. That was not our okay. ongoing uh, revenue at that point. Okay. Okay. So then what happens next? Yep. So year two, uh, it was around September of 2021. Um, at that point, we were around 160, 170 of ongoing revenue for the year. So I'm at the point where, you know, bank account balances aren't going down anymore, thankfully. Uh, my wife also started a business at the same time. So we didn't have the stability of W-2 income coming in. So I felt like, okay, we've at least made it to the point where we can pay the bills. We're not dipping into savings anymore. We're not actively saving for our future, but 
that's okay. And it was in September of 2021 uh, when we were around 35 clients or so that we hired uh, the first associate, uh, Marie Lovett. She's based in Tennessee. And by the end of year two, we ended with $180,000 of revenue for the full year. Uh, and at that point, we had 38 ongoing clients and we did three, time, three one-time plans that year. Okay. And then, and then where, like, so I guess, where did it go next is like, bring us forward to where we are today. And then I want to come come back again, to understand a little bit more about this, like higher, higher where you were in late 2021. But what's, what's happened since then? Yep. So as of today, uh, we're at 78 clients. Uh, right now we have about $550,000 of ongoing revenue. Uh, so it's about $7,000 a year of fees. I will spare you the math. I know you can do it in two seconds in your head, but I did it for you in, in advance, Michael. Um, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so right now, yeah, we had 78 clients. Um, you know, in terms of the client base, the median age is 37. So we're definitely in the young family um, range. Average income is around 330,000. So definitely, you know, higher income, but not incredibly high net worth. Um, and then we have, the, in terms of net worth, it's around 1.4 million average and a median of around 575 or so to help paint the picture of where we are today. Average net worth is 1.4, median net worth is 575. So you've got a big skew. There's a couple of big people who bring up the net worth, the average a lot. Exactly. We have some okay. clients that are $10 million and up, and we have some clients that are negative 400000 because of student loan debt. Student loan debt. <laughs> yeah. Good good income, not good balance sheet, but exactly. it's working. Uh, interesting. And, um, and then did you say you've added more staff since then as well? Like you're not, it's not still, it's not 550K now with you and your associate. There's more on board. Correct. correct. We added a lead planner in October of 2022 when we were around 63 clients or so. So at that point, I felt like, okay, you know, we have enough revenue to support me, support my associate. Again, you know, my the lifestyle that my wife and I were living at the time, we made intentional life decisions that, you know, I, we didn't have a lot of fixed costs, right? We didn't buy a home yet. We haven't started a family. So we've kept reinvesting back into the business. So I felt like, okay, with this net income starting to go up, I would rather start to hire staff earlier, um, knowing that a few years down the road, hopefully we'll be in the spot of having a family. And I wanted to feel like, you know, I'd rather prioritize building up the team and getting everyone in place earlier, as opposed to maximizing, you know, profit for the first two years. Because frankly, you asked the question, how would that change our life in the first two years? And the answer is, we could buy a home earlier, but that wasn't as important to us as opposed to getting our businesses in the spot we wanted to be in. So... And so then, so as of today, you're sitting with, just to make sure I'm processing, so 78 clients, $550,000 of run rate revenue, three-person team, like you, a lead, and an associate. And is there any like operation support staff around you as well, or like just the three of you and you haven't hired any kind of administrative support? It's just the three of us, but we do outsource investment management to a firm called First Ascent. So they're doing our account opening, they're doing trading, they're doing rebalancing. So we do think of them as an extension of the team, uh, but we're not paying anything for their services, right? Clients just pay them directly if they want the service. So, all right, wait, so, that, so then I got to understand fee structure of how this works that like clients are paying First Ascent as opposed to you. So how, how does fee structure works? So we're a bit unique where we use a income and net worth model uh, in terms of the annual fee that we charge clients. So we take 1% of earned income, 
plus uh, 0.5% of net worth. And that puts them in one of five fee uh, structures. So it's either $5,000 a year, $7,500 a year, 10,000, 15, or 20. So we basically have these very wide tiers and you do the calculation. And if you fall in the zero to $7,500 calculation, your fee is $5,000. And then it goes up from there. Um, so we don't charge an assets under management fee. Um, if clients want a, a investment management, uh, we frame it to clients. Hey, you know, this is their fee. Um, here are the value. Here's the value to doing it. Uh, you'd pay their fee directly. If you don't want to use them, you can do your own investments or do something different. That's fine. We'll help uh, guide the recommendations from there. And our thought process around that is, you know, we didn't want to charge uh, an AUM and have their fee be constantly changing. Uh, we really wanted to separate financial planning services from investment management. And we felt like, you know, this, at least from our standpoint, uh, there's nothing wrong with AUM, but things like paying down a mortgage or rolling money in between 401k accounts or managing assets, we didn't want to have those decisions impact our fee at all. And we also wanted to structure things as, you know, as clients' complexity goes up, uh, so if their income goes up or their net worth goes up, you know, our fee goes up as well. So if we have a client that has a $1 million net worth and they have a liquidation event, which we've happened, and they're now at $10 million, we also wanted to feel like our fee went up with them. So the benefit of the AUM is, you know, as assets go up, the fee goes up. So we liked that part, but we also like the benefit of the flat fee where it's not constantly changing every year. So we kind of married those two together and then created this blended fee structure. So then how are income and net worth like defined and calculated in this context? Income is earned income, so defined as defined by the IRS. Uh, so it's wages, uh, bonuses, RSUs, uh, business income, um, and then net worth is you know we have it pulled into e money. It's pretty standard. Like we're not going super deep into you know what's your car worth or things like that. But we do include home equity, uh, their investment accounts, their bank accounts, and I think the benefit of having these wide tiers is we don't have to really get specific of oh, is this included or not? If you're in the range, you have the fee. Um, so that's where we wanted to be like we're doing it broad enough where we don't have to get really specific in terms of net worth. Because I certainly recognize that can be kind of gray. Like how do you measure net worth for someone? Interesting. So so income is earned income. So you're not like, right, they're, they're not, like they're not getting tagged on investment income, passive income coming through. It just, it's you know, it's it's working activity, it's jobs, it's I guess business business ownership of businesses you're you're actively involved in on the on the income side. Uh, I guess I'm just trying to process. I mean, things like do you get real estate investors where you're like, is my real estate income passive or active? Like, you know, I bought I bought real estate for the passive dream, but I do still have to fix the toilet sometimes as the landlord. Like, are you like how how far down that rabbit hole do you get as you're trying to define this? Yeah, that's a great question. And fortunately, we if, if we had a client in that situation that was a intense real estate investor, we'd refer them out. <laughs> um, so we don't we have a few people that might have one property or two, but you know, with the clientele that we're working with in terms of income, it's usually business income, W two, and then S corp income. It's really not 
too complex outside of that. Yeah. Um, so we're not having to really get into, oh, is this included or is this not? Uh, we don't include business value in net worth. We think that's just a, you know, it's really hard to measure that. And we don't uh-huh. want to be um, trying to go back and forth in terms of the valuation. And I'd say this fee structure, 90% of the time, it works really well. There's obviously going to be some exceptions at times where it doesn't fit perfectly into the formula. But when mm-hmm. we're explaining it to prospects and talking about how, you know, their fee isn't going to be changing every year and it's very transparent. It's here's the annual fee and you have the option to break it into monthly or quarterly payments. You can stop it at any point. Um, If you want some investment management, that's great. You know, here's the pros and cons of that. You'd pay this fee. If you want to do it on your own, that's great. We'll help you do it. So I feel like it really puts us on the right side of the table of the clients and at the same time, you know, has that mechanism to grow with complexity as complexity goes up. Well, I guess I, I see your point around just how sort how semi stable this ends up being. Like your your thresholds are twenty five hundred to five thousand dollar thresholds, right? So just practically speaking, like for me, just to get from the five thousand dollar tier to the seventy five hundred dollar tier, like I need to either increase my earned income by two hundred and fifty thousand dollars more than I was earning before, which is not not a lightweight thing to do as an ongoing income. Or I need to add half a million dollars to my net worth so that half a percent of that, you know, lifts lifts me up a twenty five hundred dollar tier. So, you know, if you're if you've got clients that are young and upwardly mobile and building businesses and building net worth, like they'll get there at least maybe a tier or two. But I, I see what you mean. Like clients may not move even like good earning, good saving clients still may not move a single tier for several years. Exactly. And I'd say when they do go up, um, we know about it ahead of time. It happens evenly over two years. So when we think about raising fees for clients, I think it's an easier conversation when we know they when they sign on, they see the full structure, right? They know as you know, income and net worth goes up, their fees going up too. I think sometimes that makes it an easier conversation for a formula to help drive it or seeing their progress and their net worth. And you know, clients whose net worth and income goes up are probably going to be happier to, to pay your fee when you say, you know, hey, based on the progress we've had, you know, things get certainly more complex now from a tax standpoint, investment, estate. Here's the fee structure. It's going to happen evenly over two years. So it's not like it's a big jump to your cash flow either. We're setting expectations with them up front that fees go up over time. And, you know, I do think that, you know, a higher income, a higher net worth, there's more time, there's more complexity and fees should be higher for them, right? Um, but I do think it's an easier conversation. And we have had many clients whose fees raised. Uh, we haven't had a single client leave us from a fee raise. Uh, so I think that's really telling of, you know, we're very upfront. If someone's at $10,001, right, we're going to say, hey, you're right at the top of the threshold. We're not going to increase your fee this year, but wanted to let you know, based on the trajectory that you're going, it's likely going to be here next year. Um, and I'd say same thing with prospects sometimes too. You know, there's We can usually get it within 80 to 90% of the time what their fee level is, but there has been times where we quoted them the lower amount. Um, they were the higher amount and we said, hey, you know, we're going to honor this, certainly understand. We don't want to have to have a client fully disclose like all their income net worth. I think there's some <laughs> guesstimating that goes into it sure. up front. Um, but when you think about this 5, 10, 15 years down the road, uh, in terms of building that relationship with the client, it's not going to be the end of the world if you were off by a few thousand dollars in year one. It's an interesting way to frame it as well that um, uh, 
like even if you quote a low fee originally, oops, we're off a little bit. You were like one tier off again. Like it's not like you're quoting them zero and they're expensive. Maybe you you quoted them seven thousand five hundred instead of ten grand. It's like we're we're going to be okay here <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. Exactly. Uh, that even if you you end up quoting a lower fee, you'll come back and say, look, we'll honor the quote, but just to warn you, if this is going well and you're building wealth, like the fee is going to need to adjust in a in a future year. But hey, like let's let's go through the year together and see how we feel because you're confident how they're going to feel at the end of the year. Exactly. You got it. I think it's I think it's striking though the uh just so for a lot of advisor firms I know they really struggle with fee increases if they're like if they're not on an AUM schedule which at least has the sort of the 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 glorious simplicity of markets go up on average and the fee recalculates automatically and I just don't have to have these fee increase conversations that just you you seem very very casual and comfortable with communicating and setting the expectation like fees are going up over time i mean it's as your wealth is building because of our formula so like you're you should only be paying us more because you're building wealth and things are going well but i'm just struck hearing you describe this like you have a very a very comfortable attitude and discussion around like well yeah we just tell them the fee's going to go up in the next two years and then we move up the fee thousands of dollars per year as necessary to get them to where they need to be and like that's fine that's fine yeah i think a big part of that too is the confidence that we know that if we have a a year to work with this client um we think there's a very very high likelihood that we're going to show a ton of value in that first year and that they're going to be comfortable with a fee going up and i think the fact that it happens evenly over two years right it's not a huge jump right away and we're showing them where they are in the range we're setting those expectations early you know clients are going to remember the value that they get from you, they're not going to necessarily remember like the exact fee and when it went up, right? Um, so I do think it sets expectations up front. So it makes that conversation a little easier. It's always going to be hard. And I, I empathize with advisors who, you know, they have a minimum fee starting out. And we had this too. We used to be at 3000 uh, minimum fee and we bumped it up to 5000 And sometimes those aren't the most fun conversations over time. Um, but when I think you set those expectations up front of you're at our minimum right now at 5000 but as things things uh, progress as your income and net worth goes up, they're going to feel great too. And I think you're not saying we're going to charge you more because we're for the sake of charging more. We're charging you more because these are the types of decisions that happen in your life and how complexity grows as income and net worth goes up. And we're positioning our fee structure to help accommodate that for you. So, and so as fees have lifted over time and that inevitable reality, as you noted, like the the fees we set in year one are usually not the fees we have several years in on the on the minimum end. Uh, like you've you've been going back to raise fees even on the early clients as well. Like everybody's come up over time, or did you you grandfather some early folks? We grandfathered just a few in at our three thousand dollar level, where you know we just didn't feel right raising them up to the the five thousand level. But most of our clients, you know, there was only a handful that were at that three thousand to start with. You know, I was very fortunate to learn from other people that came on your podcast and what you shared and XYPM that you know you don't want to price yourself too low to start. I do think when you're starting from scratch, there's a component of I just need to get clients in the door. But I knew at once I hit a certain point, um, I didn't want to be at three thousand forever for the minimum. So fortunately, you know, actually going into year two, that's when I increased it up to five thousand. So those conversations with clients that were at that three thousand dollar fee going up to five thousand, there's only a handful of them. So so like how do you handle just I don't know, fee calculation updates? I mean, I'm just envisioning like 
78 clients is not a trivial number of people to like send me your tax return so that I can do the math. And then like I need to update the calculation from eMoney. And of course, three of the links are broken. So I need you to like fix the link so that I can get the number so that I can calculate whether to bill you more. Like maybe I'm making this harder than it needs to be. <laughs> like how, how does this fee calculation, like the, the, the work on an annual basis to update and make sure they're in the right tier? Yeah, great question. I can imagine how it, it it's great in pra- in theory, but then when you get to practice, you're like, how do I do this? So, yeah. for us um, in our our fall meeting that we have with clients, we have a section in our template that says, you know, go to eMoney, pull up the the income and net worth. Um, we do use either current income or prior year income, whatever we think is more reflective, and we have the client get involved with that too, and we run a quick fee calculation there at our fall meeting, and from there we'll know, you know, is someone going to be going up a fee level? If so, we're going to add it to the agenda and talk to them about it and set expectations. Um, if they're not, then we know we don't really have to share that. So that's that's step one. And then step two is in December, um, at the end of the year, we do need to go into eMoney. It's not the most fun process, but download PDFs of all their net worth, have that for compliance purposes, have a spreadsheet that does the calculation. Um, so that's not the most fun thing in the world. But I think more from a client communication standpoint, you know, we're having that conversation in the fall after we have a great meeting with them and they feel all the value. It's not just an email that we're sending to them in December saying, hey, by the way, your income is this and your net worth. So therefore, it's going up. So we try to really be transparent up front with it. And then if you're not managing investment accounts, how do you actually do the billing? Like, where do they pay from? Because these aren't small dollar amounts. We use advice pay and I'd say 90% of our clients will just pay right out of their bank account. And, you know, it works for their cash flow. We do have a handful of clients that pay the fee out of their taxable investment accounts too. So First Ascent helps to process the fee payments. Uh, we use advice pay to still send that invoice. Um, so it's pretty simple there. I think the, also the nice part of this fee structure is uh, billing is incredibly easy when you have five fee structures and it doesn't change throughout the year. <laughs> because I guess the, the only painful part is the December process to make sure that clients don't need to move a tier. Exactly. And then are they paying like one lump, like they pay annually or do you break this apart into pieces? It's an annual fee that's broken into monthly or quarterly payments. And we give the clients the option in terms of what they prefer there. I would say 80% of our clients do a quarterly payment. So uh, the other 20% are doing monthly from there. We don't have an option to do annual. They're only up on two-year lags and they don't have to raise the fee until they move all the way through the threshold. Like, How do you, how do you think about that phenomenon of are, are there fees you're leaving on the table by not not really charging the full 1% plus half a percent every year recalculated. I'm sure I'm leaving some near-term revenue on the table, um, but when I think about it of uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and you know, we see the client retention rates to know when you get a client, it, the likelihood is you're going to get a client for life. And you know, with the clientele that we're working with, they're going to be pretty consistently going up that fear, uh, fee tier. Yep. So we feel pretty comfortable to say, you know, especially with where we are now, we see a lot of clients that are at $7,500 and they're going up that really quickly. 
Um, so I'm not too worried about that. I think we're still able to meet our financial goals. We're still able to have team members uh, earn what they need to earn. You know, I'm able to pull out what I need to pull out from the business. I think from a client perspective, it just makes it a bit easier to know things go up evenly over two years. It's kind of like the AUM, right? I mean, having a $2,500 increase in AUM for a client that's in their mid thirties, they would have to have a lot of AUM to do that. Right. So it is with our clientele that is typically in their mid to late thirties, it, it can be a pretty big fee increase from a cash flow perspective, especially when their young families paying for two kids in daycare. And then I guess I'm just wondering for the, you know, the, for the time you've been going, going into this, kind of you're, you're coming up on four year anniversary, just what's retention rate been? I mean, are, are like, are you getting some turnover people that are like, thanks for the service, you know, happy I paid your $7,500, but like, I'm feeling like I'm in a better financial place right now. I don't, I don't really feel like I need to keep paying this on an ongoing basis. Do, do you find people that start falling off? We're fortunate where as of last year, um, our retention rates at 98%. Um, so we've had one client leave. Uh, it was from losing a job and, you know, they're getting married, paying down some, some debt too. Uh, but Obviously, the, the numbers are with us in terms of people that engage with us are continuing to engage with us. Now, do I expect it to be 98% forever? Absolutely not, right? And I think if it is 98%, we might actually be doing something wrong because we're probably over-servicing clients too to a certain extent. Or, but I think or, as it, or underpriced, you can have too high of a retention rate. That signals you might not be charging enough. Yep. But also, if we increase our minimum fee to 7500 10000 we might be pricing out some of the clients that we wanted to serve in the first place, right? Like those young families that have kids and equity compensation, they're running around, they're in an expensive season of life. Um, so it's something that we're aware of. And I don't know, I, I'm sure other advisors have probably felt this too, where you could just keep raising your fee. But also I came from a background in my last firm where the minimum fee was $30,000 a year and we couldn't work with 99.999% of the population. So I think at times there's often that tension between the service that you provide um, and the fees that you have. And I think it's, it's easy to say, let's just increase the fee. But then, you know, I think the human part of you feels like, you know, I, I love these clients. I love the work we're doing. So, you know, it might be okay that we're not absolutely maximizing revenue for the firm, but if we're still able to hit some of our targets, um, have our team members live our ide their ideal lives, there's enough coming in for me too. Clients are happy. We feel like that's pretty good. Um, but it is something that we're continuing having conversations about. So now I better context around the the first ascent piece, like the investment piece. So clients essentially just pay the first ascent, like TAMP investment management fee directly to first ascent. You say, hey, we're setting this up and facilitating this, but I'm I'm like I'm not I'm not managing the portfolio, which is like my my word for like we're sitting in front of a keyboard, like actively trading the the client's portfolio. Like I'm not I'm not managing your portfolio. We have a partner that does that and sets the models and does the trades and gets them implemented and keeps you rebalanced. So if you don't want to do that yourself, like you can pay them. We're overseeing them as part of our fee, but we're overseeing them as part of our fee. So like you don't have to pay us something separate or additional because if you use first ascent, we're going to oversee it. And if you put it in a Vanguard account, we're going to oversee it. So our work's the same either way. 
You got it. And we also say, you know, there's no secret to the formula. Like, you know, we're investing in low cost index funds. First Ascent does also have ESG portfolios. So some of our clients use that too. But we frame it to them of, hey, you can go do this on your own. We'll give you the exact funds to do, but here's the amount of time and effort that's going to require to do it. And I think it appeases to some of the DIY investors that love this stuff, right? And they're like, great. I don't have to pick up all my accounts and go work with you. Like, that's awesome. Um, however, 75% of our clients do use first ascent so i think that is really telling in terms of there's still a lot of value in investment management there's a lot of people that still want to outsource this they want that to be taken care of for them so we have 75 percent of our clients paying first ascent an additional fee but from our perspective we're thinking you know that's going to allow us if they're doing all the investment operations, the trading, the rebalancing, all of that, um, we can work with more clients and we can be more proactive with our clients and do more planning. And so then I guess I, I just got to ask again, like processing my my brain in the investment realm, like not concerned that like other dollars or business growth gets left on the table because you're you're not charging some AUM fee for, I mean, you still do have some oversight obligations if you're sub-advising out to first ascent, like you don't, you don't have any concerns on that end of whether you could have a component of AUM in there to cover that? If I did, if we did need to do that, we would need to hire someone probably to do all the trading and the rebalancing and all of that. And uh, it makes compliance more complicated too. I'm trying to run the business as simple as possible. And actually from a compliance standpoint, when you're not doing trading and you don't have discretion and you don't have custody, it makes it pretty easy overall. There's still certainly things you need to do. Um, there's there's my, less scrutiny of whether your employees might be front running client trades if you literally don't have the money to trade with discretion in the first place. Exactly. And my thought process too is if we can serve an extra, you know, 10 clients as a team, uh, because we have less time going to investment management, you know, our financial planning fees are probably more going to make up for the AUM revenue and hiring staff to do that. Interesting. And, and I guess just from the client end, just does anybody start raising questions? Wait, I'm, I pay you all this money and then I also pay pay them. I also pay first ascent. Like I have to pay two fees here. You know, it, it is a little bit in like the prospect uh, onboarding. There is a bit of education that goes into it, but I think it's how you frame it. You say, you know, our role is to, you know, be your financial planning team. We're doing all these things. Uh, we're meeting with you three times a year. We're doing like, you know, the equity comp and all of that too. Um, investment management is a separate service. We like to think of those very differently. And if you want to do this, uh, we have a team, a relationship. We think of them as our extended investment team. Um, that in working with us, you get access to them. But I think it takes pressure off of, oh, we're not recommending them to get more AUM fee. I'm not saying we would do that in the first place. I think a lot of advisors are really doing the, the right work there. However, I think it's less intimidating when you know, oh, I can recommend this, but there's no more dollars that are going and experience your wealth pocket. So I think it sometimes makes clients relax a bit to say, we don't have to have a certain amount of AUM to work with us. Or you know, if we are purposely moving pre-tax IRA money into a 401k so we can do backdoor Ross, like none of that is impacting our fee. So now help us understand what do, what do I get for five to $20,000 fees? Like what are you, what are you doing for clients to charge this level of fee without assets for like 30 something year olds? I think you said your median clients 37. So what are you doing for 30 somethings for a $5,000 minimum when all the investment stuff goes out to first descent and that's paid separately. 
what, what do you do for the fee? Sure. I'll, I'll walk you through our onboarding process. But I'd say number one is we start with you know classic discovery, but for us, we do use uh, George Kinder's uh, three life planning questions. So we do have a heavy emphasis on helping clients really articulate, you know, step into and live their dream life and setting that vision uh, before we talk about any money or investment recommendations or financial planning. And, you know, one unique thing that we do after this meeting is we actually create something called a life planning timeline in a software called Miro, which is this like visual whiteboarding software. So every client has this timeline with about 10 years that are plotted out uh, with a picture of their family in the top left. And then we have some of these pictures of certain events or milestones or trips or life transitions that are ahead of them uh, that we help them to uncover during, during George Kinder's questions. So for example, we might have a client that's a young family and, you know, in the next three to five years, they might have buy a new home or kid goes to kindergarten or they want to travel to this spot and change a job. So all those different life transitions, we really help them to visualize some of that because it's so powerful for a client to have that meeting, but then also think about, hey, as a couple, we're looking at this together and moving around what's important. I think that's a really powerful conversation to make sure their life is always leading their money. Their money isn't leading their life. And you said this is a 10-year window that, that, you, that you show the timeline for? Correct. So why not the, I mean, right, I'm thinking like the traditional, you're going to retire at whatever, is it 60-something and die at 90-something, right? Like most planning timelines I find are a lot longer, if only just to keep clients like focus on long-term goals and saving for retirement and such. Uh, like I'm, I'm struck by, I guess I'll say like how, sh- how short-term your time window is for the timeline. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good question because the planning that we're doing in terms of the nuts and bolts of financial planning recommendations, they're definitely long-term in nature in terms of where we're saving and how we're positioning retirement funds and investment strategy. But when you think about most clients, what do they care about, especially young families? You know, we have a values-based niche and we put this on our website that, you know, a lot of the clients that come work with us, they love to travel and they don't really believe in the whole nine to five work until you're 65 concept. You know, they want to do something differently along the way. They want to experience their money. They want to take a sabbatical. They want to, you know, start a business or do things like that. So the earlier that we can help clients align money with their life, the more powerful the impact's going to be over the long term. So uh, I think it's great to say, hey, a client wants to have work optional in their 50s or so, but you know, you probably know it too, going through it, you know, having young kids and, and working and all of that. It's really hard to think about what you want past the next year or two. So yeah. even getting clients to stretch their thinking to five years to 10 years, that's a lot of effort, but there's also a lot of value there. So just creating the vision for the next five to 10 years uh, doesn't necessarily mean our planning recommendations aren't long-term, but similar to how, you know, I started experience your wealth and so much change in the first two to three years, I think clients' lives are very similar too. Well, I'm, I'm struck by that in, in context that I feel like in many ways, you know, part of the challenge that just financial planning, I'll say in the, in the aggregate, has had in connecting as well with with called younger clients, next generation clients and air quotes compared to, you know, the industry being kind of boomer centric for a long time. It is that phenomenon that we like to talk about long-term retirement planning. And, you know, when you're within 10 years of retirement in the home stretch and making the transition, like that, that is the goal that you're staring down. Ironically, at that point, it, it is your 10 year goal yep. or, or next 10 years goal. But when you're talking to folks in their thirties in 
you know, building career, building business, building family, uh, building a house, like all the different things that are getting built and created, like life actually comes at you really fast through that time period with a lot of changes and a lot of stress because you're you're probably on the edge of sandwich generation at that point. You've got young kids and parents may start to have a few more needs as well that you just getting five to 10 years out is actually a lot of work for them. Like, let's just figure out what we're focusing on over the next few years and make meaningful progress on that. And and we'll just keep revisiting as life keep com- keeps coming at us. Yeah, I love that framing. And there's very few clients that come to us and say, you know, a 33-year-old with two kids and say, I want to retire at 65. And if they do that, sure, well, we'll meet them where they are. But when you start to ask, well, that's interesting, you know, what does retiring at 65 mean to you? Why is that important? Um, You see with when you're going through these George Kinder's life planning, you know, topics and questions, there are certain themes. And a lot of that is controlling time. It's travel. It's time with family. It's doing work that they're really impactful for. So the earlier that you can help clients uh, use their fi- their money to support those decisions, that actually might be a lot better mm-hmm. for their long-term financial future because then maybe they're doing work because they love to do it and they're going to work longer. Um, so there's very little value. We've done it for a few clients, uh, but showing, you know, a 15, 20, or more like a 30 to 40 to 50 year Monte Carlo when you're in your 30s, when it says everyone's going to be a 10, 15 millionaire. Um, but we have had some clients that want that sense of financial security in the future before they can look at near term decisions, like even something as small as hiring a house cleaner. We like we had to actually go through that process to get a client to feel comfortable to say, we're going in a good path of work optional around this age. Therefore, these are some of the near term decisions that we can do that are just going to improve our quality of life. Uh, and I think that's what true financial planning is, is right. It's enjoying some of those uh, really important things in your life as soon as possible while not also jeopardizing your future. I think it's an interesting because that's, that is not the traditional frame, but I like it. I like it. So, so meeting number one, uh, you go through your discovery process, focused around life planning questions and their their life plan and and being able to get the takeaways to build their life planning timeline. So like where does the data e part of discover like discovery data gathering come? Do you do you do it before that meeting? Do you do it after that meeting? Does it come in a future meeting? Like when when do you get the numbers? Yep, we get into the nerdy numbers in the next meeting. Don't worry, Michael. We can talk through okay. that. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, first we start with the vision. We get them motivated because you know asking clients to link accounts and e money and fill out a form. It's not the most exciting thing in the world, but after they're doing it, of uh, from having this amazing conversation, feeling motivated, it's typically a little easier, right? So we use the analogy. It's sort of like cleaning out a dirty closet where the process stinks, but once it's done, you feel really great and accomplished. And that's what we view as the, you know, classic get organized meeting where um, we send clients a custom questionnaire in jot form. Um, they fill out some of those about more, you know, income figures. Do they have equity compensation? Kind of these if this then that questions. Uh, and then they also link accounts into eMoney. We give them the list of accounts and we have a 60-minute meeting with them to help to go through the list because we're not expecting clients to get the whole thing, but they might get 60 to 80% or so. And then we help them finalize the rest of it. And why JotForm? Like, where did that come from? I felt like we wanted to have something that had a lot of customization in it. So for example, uh, we work, we did work with a consultant to help us create this. And I said, here's my wish list. I'm finding that in our get organized process, we're missing information over here or we're not getting this. And um, in JotForm, what I liked is you can 
build out if they click this, then there are other things that happen. So for example, you know, we have a question that says, do you have private equity compensation? And if a client says yes, it says, is it administered by Carta? If they say yes, but most clients are, it gives them instructions on how to invite us to Carta. So we're able to save some time ahead of time um, by doing mm-hmm. some of that and having more consistent uh, get organized process. Because if they're saying yes, every single client is seeing the next thing. So especially as we grow and scale, you know, we're putting less emphasis on the advisor to have to remember to ask the question because we're building it into the, the system ahead of time. And, and so that's ultimately what meeting number two actually is, is, okay, let's pull up the information. We're going to look at what you did fill out in jot form and where the blanks are. We're going to look at whatever other information you were stuck on. And we're just going to try to figure this out right, right here and now in the meeting. You got it. And that's the power, I think, of having two team members as well, where, you know, we can share screens in Zoom, you can control a client's and, you know, one of us can go log into their 401k and get the investment options or the summary plan description and things like that, while the other person is working on other things as well. So it's we view that as a working session to help get that closet organized. In- interesting. So you're, it's a virtual meeting, but you still got two people on the call because you're essentially tag teaming, like, okay, you go find their summary plan description while I'm going to keep talking to them about their their prior year tax returns and where to find that, whatever it is. Yes. One person is leading the meeting. So they have the agenda. They're kind of guiding where we go. And the other person is just helping to implement things or problem solve or do things on the side too. Um, so I think that takes a lot of the onus off the client. And at the end of the day, you know, we're getting all the data that we love and e-money and all the statements too. But by having two of us there and it's 60 minutes, it's really not that long. Uh, we're at least setting ourselves up for success for the next meeting, which is the initial recommendations. So, so meeting number three is initial recommendations. Correct. And this is where our team, uh, we use a software called MindMeister, which is a, a mind mapping software. Have you used that before? Uh, I have not used mind Ma- MindMeister, but I've used like Coggle and a couple of other mind mapping tools over the years. So this is a pain point for our team. And if any uh, advisors or fintech people are out there listening, uh, I think it would be great. But, you know, where do you store a lot of the pertinent information in terms of onboarding, right? Because CRM is not meant for, you know, what's their income numbers? What's their spending and other details that are pertinent to financial planning? I think a lot of people use financial planning software for that, which is great. Uh, but also financial planning software doesn't really capture things like, you know, what's the details of their 401k? Is there a true up? Is there after-tax contributions? Um, you know, if they have private equity compensation, what's the details? What's the vesting, early exercise, 83B, things like that. So what we did was saying, I wish I had something at my last firm that I could just pull up and see a client's entire financial life in one spot. So we just built that custom from MindMeister. So there's essentially each client has this big mind map with a picture of them in the center. And there are all of these webs that go around for things like cash flow and things like taxes and equity compensation and life insurance and employee benefits all the way around. Um, and what our team does and, you know, my, my team, like it's not the most fun process in the world, right? Nothing really talks to each other. It's not very automated, uh, but it is nice where we can build in questions and checklists within the mind map to say, okay, you know, this client has RSUs. Are you looking at these questions? So our team goes through, looks at all the data from the initial recommendations, fills in that mind map, and then we use that to help to articulate the, you know, near-term recommendations for initial recommendations. So 
so help me understand a little more just like what's in the mind map like what like what are you covering what are you actually mind mind mapping out is it like i mean is there a standard template or is this literally just like a free association conversation there is a standard template that we have. So every time we have a new client that comes on board, we duplicate the template. So we get all the sections that we've learned throughout the years. Uh, and then we're able to build off of that. And then I think the good part with a template is you can start very broad and then you just delete what you don't need. Um, so in other words, if, some, if we're looking at employee benefits, uh, you open up the branches and there's things for health insurance, disability, life insurance, and dependent care FSA and things like that. So it's sort of this checklist that our team goes through to ask questions to be sure that you know we're having consistent uh, quality service across all clients. There's less dependency on us remembering it. And, you know, there's also a way for us to document learnings, right? Even something as, you know, simple as does a 401k have after-tax contributions? Um, where we have this in the template so we can ask that, at least prompt the question so our team knows uh, yes or no from that. And that helps to build initial recommendations. So I guess I'm just trying to visualize, like, is the mind map how you're delivering the recommendations? Is the mind map how you're showing the summary of their financial information that you got in the first two meetings. And like, this is just reflecting back what they've got. It's like an alternative to a, a balance sheet kind of exercise. Like just where, where is this in the process of gathering, produ- gathering information and producing deliverables? It's between, we, we like to think of the mind map as this is the research report that our team did. And with the client, we're just going to show the executive summary. And we use that, the research report, to then translate it to the executive summary for a client, which uh, we just use a simple Word document of here's each section of certain financial planning. Um, here are the most important items. Uh, we cover some of those. And we also have uh, Miro, again, that whiteboarding software. We do have a visual in there um, that shows them, you know, bank account structure and where investments are uh, and how to prioritize savings and things like that. So, you know, we try to create our deliverables. So it appeals to, you know, auditory learners, read, write learners, but also visual learners too. Um, So we don't show clients the mind map. I think they would be completely intimidated by it, but it is helpful for our team if they ask a question about a certain financial planning topic, um, we're able to quickly pull that up. Okay, so that still hadn't quite clicked. So the mind map literally isn't for the client at all. Like this is your internal reference document for all of the information. Like you're you're populating all the client information into the mind map as your internal just like tool to keep track of all of their financial planning stuff. You got it. Yep. We include a link to it if they're curious to see like, hey, this is some of the behind the scenes, but let's say 95% of clients haven't gone into it because they don't really care, right? They care more about what's in it for them and how does this apply to them. Uh, But at least what this does for our team is as we're reviewing all of this, right, we're doing a lot of the planning work ahead of time where even though we might not tackle their estate plan right away, right? If they have estate planning documents, we're pulling out, you know, here's the guardians and here are the provisions and things like that. So your your deliverables coming into meeting number three here, you've got the life planning timeline that you created in, in Miro, and then like a short executive summary document of the recommendations that you're giving them. Is that like, is that everything? Does that cover it? 
Yep, that covers it. It's usually a you know a three-page Word document or so, and whenever we can quantify savings, we absolutely try to do it. So, for example, something like moving the cash that you have here into a high-yield savings account—that's three or four thousand dollars—or making this changing your student loan uh, repayment strategy from repay to pay. Here's fifty thousand um, dollars. So we do have some of those recommendations and try to quantify when we can. And then with the client, you know, we're sharing our screen. Um, we're using that Miro board, which is a lot of the time as it relates to here's your bank account structure. Here's how much cash we recommend that you hold on to. Um, if you have a bunch of different investment accounts, if they have, you know, old 401ks or we're recommending opening up new Roth IRAs and things like that, uh, we have this visual tell the whole story. So we combine that visual with a very, very simple Word document uh, and that's their initial recommendations. And so even though like you're loading this into eMoney, you're like you're not coming with eMoney output. You're not necessarily putting like eMoney or Decision Center up on the screen. Uh, like this is all just coming directly down to executive summary document, planning lifeline, Miro visuals. I'd say for 90% of the clients, yes. Um, there are a subset that are approaching or in financial independence. And I think at that stage, uh, that's where some of the valuable conversations of e-money come in, you know, similar to what you mentioned earlier, where a lot of the typical clients are 10 years away from retirement. So there is a lot of value in showing the Monte Carlo. Right. Um, from our standpoint, you know, a, a new client that is 32 earning a really good income, but they're at the beginning of their wealth building journey, you know, showing them a decision center to show, hey, you're going to be able to retire at 57. They're like, great, can I buy a home tomorrow? <laughs> um, but some of those clients that are approaching financial independence, that's where we have used some of eMoney's decision centers to better understand when is that work optional or how does buying the second home impact things. So it definitely depends on the client situation. It's not a standard process that we do for everyone. Out of curiosity, just are you willing to share a copy of one of these, like the mind map and the and the planning timeline, just for, for folks that are listening and want to see what this looks like? Because it's you're doing stuff that's very different than what what most of us do in traditional planning tools. Of course, I'd be happy to. All right, I appreciate that. So, uh, so for folks who are listening, this is episode 331. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 331, uh, we'll have links out in the show notes for uh, you know a, a, a copy of Jake's mind map, I guess, data, data tracking tool internally and the the planning timeline for what they put in front of clients. So so meeting number three, you you framed as initial recommendation. So I'm presuming that means like there, we ain't done with the planning process yet. There's more coming because we are only at initial planning recommendations. So I guess just how does this meeting end and what comes next? Yep, this is where we get into uh, my favorite part. Uh, plug to your value summit. Uh, this is what I shared there about um, using a client task dashboard. So we don't have a quote unquote the plan. Uh, we do planning, and therefore we wanted to create a software that was able to be dynamic. It was able to help clients implement. It was able to be collaborative. So our meeting four uh, is our our meeting called the roadmap meeting. And what we do with this is we use a software called MeisterTask, uh, which is a task management software. And we invite each client as their own project. So we'll say, you know, here's client one. Um, and we'll put, we have columns in this project of short-term, 
midterm, long-term, and reoccurring. And we plot out some of the things that we did in our research report. So clients are able to see, you know, this is what's on the horizon, but, you know, that's not a next three month, next six month, next year thing. Uh, and we're able to put some of these to-dos into this software uh, and actually uh, assign them due dates, communicate to them in this to help them actually implement the recommendations easier. So, uh, so this is a client, sorry, I, I guess this is task management. I'm envisioning like, Trello, Asana, right? Like the Kanban board style with different columns. So like same kind of thing. It's just these are, this isn't your internal task now. This is literally like client tasks. Like you're you're going to roll over your 401k or like you're going to go get your will updated or you're going to find a new attorney to get your will updated because you got to pick someone first. Like the, those kinds of tasks. Exactly. Yep. So clients are interacting with this. They have due dates. So um, we actually know, you know, in the next 90 days, we help them agree to, you know, what are some of those two to three priorities, right? And what do you see getting in the way? And they'll assign due dates. So there, I think there's more ownership when they're saying when they're going to do something versus us just nagging them via email. So what we like about this is it's very modern. So there is a mobile app. Um, you know, all of the emails go into all the notifications and Meister tasks go directly to our email. So we're also recording that for compliance reasons, too. Um, but when we think about what's the value of working with an advisor ongoing, right? Like we like to think of it as we're helping you do more of this because we're not doing the investment management. We're outsourcing that. We're giving you the tools to make this easier. So you have some of the uh, due dates that come in. Um, you know, that thing that we talked about that had four steps to it, you're not going to remember it 90 days from now, but you're going to get a task. It's going to, then you can hit view task and it brings you right in there. Um, so I think it saves a lot of time on our end of, you know, helping to reiterate things to clients. And I also think it just helps clients do more stuff along the way. So I'm noting just like Meister task, mind Meister, like, are these linked? Like, is this, is this the same company? Is there like integrations between your map and your task system? Or is this just coincidental? They are similar companies. Um, I, I think they their parent companies or something like that. Uh, unfortunately, there's not integration into it, but there's not too much that goes from the mind map where we store information to Meister task where we communicate information to clients, right? Um, so, you know, I am, we definitely are looking for uh, ways that we can make things easier, but uh, we just view this software as creating this roadmap for clients, making the implementation easier. And then also for our team members, knowing like, here are the priorities and here are things that we can pick from in the mid and long term that are then going to go feed into our meeting agendas for future meetings. So, so I guess I get it now. Like the, this task system is very specifically like not just client tasks of things we're going to do for the client, but literally client tasks for the client. They get their own project they log into and, and do their thing. Whereas the the whole point of the map for you, that's an internal reference document. That's the where do we store all the client information that doesn't seem to fit well anywhere else. So they, they wouldn't need to talk to each other because one's an internal reference tool and one's an external client tool. Or you like got client facing if they did talk, that would be great. Um, I know, I think Jim came on uh, Kitz's podcast a, a few episodes ago, and he talked about using Asana, right? And he has Asana as internal and external. And I actually connected with him after, had a great conversation. If we had something like that, um, that did say, you know, client 
task here change, like go change the dashboard, that would be really powerful for us. But also at the same time, um, we're not going to have 2,000, 3,000 clients, right? I think sometimes I get caught in, I want things to be automated as possible and uh, make it as smooth too. But when you think about it, you know, if we have a team of two advisors and 80 clients, that's 40 clients per person, it's not that much extra work. Uh, It might not be perfect, but it it does get the job done too. So... So the whole focus of the the ro- I guess so the whole focus of the robot being is just setting up the client task dashboard and then this becomes the just like the central place that you're that you're going back and forth with them from that point. Exactly. And we have maybe 80% of clients that interact with this on a uh, a frequent basis. So they're communicating in there, they're completing tasks. Um, we have some spouses that will assign tasks to each other, which we always get a kick out of. And there's always going to be, you know, 20% of clients that don't use it. And that's totally fine, right? They're going to just do email or call. And, you know, we completely support that too. But we do frame it to clients up front, um, show them this in the prospect onboarding and, and some of those conversations of this is the result of all our work together. There's like a roadmap, right? It's not just a plan that you're going to do. It's a continuous process of making guesses, evaluating, changing, and doing some of the work. So I have found that maybe, you know, showing them this dashboard to a client, they can cling on and be like, Ooh, I like a plan. I like organization. I know what we're going to chip away at. And for the, for this, um, Client task board, is this also something you'd be comfortable to share a copy of? Like I know you you went into it in detail on our value summit last year, but is there like a, a visual or something that you could share just for people who want to get a sense of what this looks like? Absolutely. Happy to. Okay. I appreciate that. So then again, this is kitsis.com uh, slash 331 for episode 331. So we'll have links out for uh, the... I guess the 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 mind map, the timeline, and the uh, client task dashboard for folks that want to see more of what this looks like. I guess you can go go reference our our value summit from last December if you want to. Uh, well, I guess December twenty twenty two, since some people will listen to this in the distant future. December twenty 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 two value summit for anybody that wants to go back and see like the full presentation from 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 Jake around this. So Jake, then where where does your team? manage like your tasks as a business is that still out of out of wealthbox because that's your main crm system correct we use everything we use wealthbox pretty heavily for client tasks uh workflows just you know basic other information for the crm so unfortunately again meister task and wealthbox don't talk to each other we explored a route of using Zapier to do it, but it was just too complicated. So for example, if we were following up with a client about um, if they were, you know, going to sign up for life insurance, right? We'll have a task in Wealthbox to say, you know, check in with client about life insurance. And then our team will then go into Meister Task, drop them a comment, and then they get a notification on their app, and then they get an email about it. And then our team will say, you know, in the description of Wealthbox, this is the date, did this, and then they'll push it to the next meeting. So when we're prepping for a meeting, we'll pull up Wealthbox to see what our team's working on. We'll pull up MeisterTask to see what happened. And that basically together forms our agenda. And and are you still using like eMoney's portal as well? Because you said clients get connected in initially. So it, it's, is that still out there? 
Yep, we use uh, the, the the client portal for uh, linking accounts, seeing net worth uh, growth. We definitely have clients that use the spending tool um, pretty significantly, especially when cash flow is so important for a young family. So seeing how things change, and they also use it for the vault. So what does a client have for us? There's a login for eMoney, and there's a login for MeisterTask. Uh, that's it. Okay, and I guess just you can live with two. At least it's not more than two. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to add too much overall, but also I think when you set the expectation up front of this is how it helps you and this is the value that it's providing and this is how we get there, you know, clients are going to be okay with, you know, you just have to log into MeisterTask and that saves, you connect your Google account or something else, it's pretty easy overall. No, I know there's also some client, like client tasks tools in eMoney as well. So I guess I'm wondering, like, why why a whole separate task management system and not not working within what eMoney has on this? Yeah, it's a great question. And for us, we felt like there was just limitations in eMoney, at least last time we looked at it, which was 2019. Um, you know, I think it would be great if um, some of the financial planning software started to add in this task feature. I know Right Capital has some tasks. I know eMoney has some of it. Uh, for us, we love the Trello board, right? We love have clients seeing the you know yeah, short term, mid term, long term, reoccurring, the, having all the of that visualization of Trello of like that that column style of task management visualization. Like, there's a reason why it's so popular. Just it's a uh, people like looking at it that way. <laughs> And I think it also plays into, uh, you know, clients sticking around too. And I know like some of the benefit of AUM is it's sticky, right? Uh, I think the retention for AUM is a lot higher than retainer clients. Um, but when they're seeing MeisterTask and they're seeing the path of work that we're working on in the future and we're able to drag things over and add it, I think it's a very natural way for clients to see the value and seeing the journey that's ahead of them. And when I do, when we do get into that point of, fee increases, right? I don't think they're wondering as much, where are we going? Like, what's the value? So you're involving the client in it, and they're also able to shift things around or add topics that are top of mind for them. So so what comes after meeting number four? Like, what's next in the, in the planning process now? That's when we get into our ongoing client servicing. So we meet with clients uh, three times per year. Once in the winter, so typically around February and March. Uh, once in the summer, and once in the fall. And you know, pretty typical to the client service calendar. I know a lot of people have shared. We have dedicated topics that we're talking through there, where probably sixty percent of it is consistent across clients. You know, for the fall, we're doing open enrollment and year-end tax planning. Uh, but there's also probably 30 to 40%, which is customized to the client. So we just use a very simple Word document for those. Um, and then we're putting the action items into MeisterTask after that. So so what are the what do you cover in the other meetings for the service calendar? If the fall is open enrollment and you're in tax planning, what are the others? Yep. Winter, you know, the one that we're doing right now, we do bring up that life planning timeline and show it to clients. And we try to track, you know, this is what's happened, right? And, and these are some of the things that you mentioned either last year or in our initial discovery. And we spend a lot more time with clients up front talking about that life planning timeline and what's important to them and what they want their money to accomplish for them uh, than we do, you know, small cap value performance, right? And that's something right. that I love. Um, but in the winter, it's definitely about setting the strategy for the upcoming year. So we look at that. 
Uh, we also have a one-pager that we share with clients. It's not really a one-page financial plan. It's more of a one-page snapshot to show them, you know, this is how net worth went up. Um, here's what your savings rate was. And here's why money is important to you and things like that. Or this is what you accomplished last year. Uh, so we like to reinforce the value to them. of This is where you're going. This is where you were. And then let's set the strategy for the upcoming year. Uh, and that's where we dive into deeper things like cash flow projections, like what's coming in, you know, what's projected to go out, where are you going to save, doing the backdoor Ross, you know, around this time, we're doing a lot of tax uh, preparations and making sure those are in good place. And then it's typically two to three other planning topics, which are customized to the client, but we might be looking at exercising ISOs earlier in the year or getting new grants or things like that. So we do have a template for each of those meetings, but it's very much a customized process to a certain extent uh, within each of those agendas. And then what's, so like that was fall and winter, what's the third meeting? The summer we call of the, the get stuff done meeting. So it's a very, very simple, uh, you know, here's what's outstanding and let's just have 60 minutes together to, if you're you know struggling with the estate plan, let's log in and talk through questions there. Or, you know, this is outstanding, let's just do it uh, live. So it's less about planning, but we found that having that checkpoint especially with young families where they're just so busy and, and the implementation's harder. There's not a lot of prep work on yeah. our end as a team. We're not asking for you know too much information. We're not doing these projections. It's more of here are a All few right. things and we're just going to use this live and, and get stuff done with you. So mostly uh, like this is just a pulling up Meister task board together and talking through what's going on what are you working on? Where are you stuck and what can we help you with? Not, not necessarily the a lot of prep materials or deliverables coming in. You got it. Yeah. The winter meeting and the fall meetings are a lot more of the strategy. The summer is let's just get stuff done. And, and there will be things that pop up, right? They, you know, they might have a home that they now want to buy or they have a liquidation event happening in equity. So it's very customized to the client to a certain extent. Um, but we like having those three checkpoints throughout the year to be sure that we're having proper touch points with them. So then the other question I've got to ask just in flowing through all of this is where did all these clients come from that you cleared half a million dollars of revenue three or four, three, three and a half years into the uh, into the business, and so wh where are all these clients coming from? So the first two years, our number one uh, place clients found us was just web search. Uh, so that's Google, fee only network, Napfa. Um, you know, media, different places there. Uh, we definitely invested very heavily into our website early on. So I think all in cost was around $8,000 for a custom build and WordPress. And for us, you know, that was the storefront. Um, I really wanted to build a website that told a unique story. It sounded, felt, you know, just flowed different than any other advisor websites too. So we've been fortunate in terms of really building up our presence online with um, getting quoted in different areas or getting referrals or getting Google reviews as well. So so who did the website? Like who did you work with to to do this kind of custom website? Because I'm presuming it's not one of the like industry standard folks. I think it actually it is Zach Swinehart. I think you know Zach. So what's okay. unique about Zach is uh, when I was reaching out to him and I talked about I wanted to create a, a different story, something where you know we don't want to do the nine to five. We want to encourage travel, like lead with values. And he was like someone that said yes, I love that. Uh, so he was sort of building a website for someone that he would want to work with, which I think was really helpful to have that thinking partner there. Um, because the way that we structured it was, again, I didn't want to go to networking events or I didn't want to go, um, 
um, you know, tried to get clients a different way. I wanted to drive traffic to the website and then have the website tell the right story. So for me, it was a big investment up front, but certainly one that's paid off in terms of ROI and clients coming in at the end of the day. The website's beautiful, and it really is. It's 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 a really nice looking website for anyone <laughs> who wants to, to go and take a look. But like you know, there are a lot of advisors that have stood up their advisory firms and like hung the proverbial virtual shingle uh, on the internet, and like a half a million dollars did not Google search their way to them in in the first couple of years. So how how are you actually getting people to the website to this beautiful website that that so many of them are are signing up? Yep, I wish I had a, a secret that I'm going to share and blow everyone's mind, but unfortunately, I don't. Um, you know, a big part of it was Google searches. So, you know, we do uh, implement Google reviews with our clients, and we have a standard process in terms of how we ask them, how we document it. Uh, we've talked with our Rhode Island regulator about it to make sure they were on board with it. So, the more Google reviews you have, the better your SEO goes up. So, fortunately, we we're actually doing this in 2019 before the new SEC rule came out. And we had that specific conversation, wrote it in writing, had a documented process. Um, so that was very fortunate, and, and I know it's kind of frustrating because some states still don't allow it. So some advisors might be hearing this, be like, "I wish I could do that, but I can't." Oh, right, because it's a big bummer. Because you don't have assets under management, so you, even though, so you, like you'll never hit SEC registration. You you live at you live state registration, so you're based in Rhode Island. So you're this is a Rhode Island regulator conversation. So the way that we do it is uh, we talk to client. There's a specific time in our process where we ask it, and that's after our uh, it's a first meeting after our onboarding, where we're having a client reflect on you know how's the relationship going so far, right? Like what's going well, what could we do differently? Uh, we talk about Google reviews at that point in a very non-threatening way, right? Because it can definitely be intimidating to put your name out there with with finances, and we send them an email with the exact same language every single time. And we have a Excel document that shows this was the date that we sent it. Um, and this is if a client uh, did a review or not. But we didn't cherry pick. We didn't uh, say, you know, we're going to only send to this client, but not this client over here. Now, with the new SEC rules, I think we probably could have done that. But we were doing this in 2019 before right. the SEC came out and, you know, relaxed their standards on testimonials. So the framework here was essentially uh, like, we're we're asking every client so we can show we're not cherry picking. It's just in the standard process. We always ask them in this meeting, and then we always send this email, and it's always the same email template. And we're logging all of that for compliance purposes. And so at that point, just we had a standard process for every client to you know point out that they can leave. I mean, do you ask them for a review? Do you just like point out that you could leave a review? <laughs> like how how ASCII do you get for this? Yep. Yeah. The language that we use is, you know, after they, they share some of that, we say, you know, something like, you know, I don't know if you're comfortable or not, but um, if you'd be willing to share your experience on Google, you know, that would be really appreciative. You know how you go to a restaurant sometimes and you see, you know, what are the reviews on this place? And unfortunately, you know, in financial services is often a big decision. And there's often not a lot of times where you get research or other people's experiences. Um, but that being said, we know personal finance is very personal. So if there's any part of you that does not feel comfortable to do this, we'd actually encourage you not to do it. Uh, but if that is something that you're willing to do, it certainly helps our business and helps uh, future clients better understand the right fit. 
So hopefully that wasn't very threatening, right? You kind of give right. people yeah. an analogy and then you also uh, give them the out too to say, you no pressure whatsoever. We also say something like there's this weird compliance rule. We have to ask every single client to make it a little lighter too. So, so I'm struck from the flip side of it as well that, you know, you, you do have a super clear segment for who you go after on the website. I mean, I just for anybody that goes and looks at the the website, I mean, the name actually sort of gives you some indication of it because I know the firm's name is Experience Your Wealth. And literally like opening of the homepage, we help travel loving young families live a life they never want to retire from. Uh, and then, you know, goes further, like we aren't your traditional financial planner and you have a whole bunch of core beliefs that are also kind of in that vein, like the most important financial decisions you make are in your 30s and 40s. The concept of retirement is obsolete. Build optionality into your financial plan. More money is not equal to more happiness. Experiences are more important than things. That was our hope where we first connect with them on values and demographics. But I think it is intimidating at times for people to explore a financial planner. So when you're connecting with them and saying, oh, yeah, I believe that about money and I believe that about life. And this does sound like my situation. Uh, I think it builds an initial uh, foundation of trust. And then from there, we have on the website to say, OK, we do have planning criteria, right? We have greater than 200K of household income to make sure that our fee is supportive, our fee can be supportive. We have equity compensation, we have business owners, we have student loans. So it helps clients to kind of screen through and say, okay, this sounds like me. And I believe that they're not just going to try to get me to retire at 65. Like they're going to help to really understand what's most important to me. You likely want to incorporate travel into your financial life, build some of the optionality. So I think it just makes it a little less intimidating to reach out um, to a financial planner. And that was our hope. And then you've, I know even you got fees on here, like just, it says our fees are 1% of earned income plus half a percent of net worth. The minimum is $416 a month, just five grand a year or, or, or $12.50 a quarter. So I guess just I'm wondering, you know, for so many of us, particularly when we're getting started, right? Again, going back to the beginning, you're starting from zero. It's all initiative and hustle. And like, I really hope some revenue shows up soon. Uh, Most advisors I know don't do all the things that you did out of the gate. Like they, they don't get so specific, specific on who they're going after. They don't talk about their fees because they want to have more flexibility. They don't talk about their minimums. They don't talk about income and other requirements because you're like just trying to get revenue in the door. Like were you like were you also much more generic early on to get anyone you could and it got more specific like this later? Or did it start here and and you did this from launch? It didn't start that specific, but we did the top of the website where it says we help travel loving young families live a life they never want to retire from, right? That was uh, that's been consistent. The values and all that stayed specific, uh, consistent. What we started to add was the income and the planning needs because, you know, what I realized was 2020, like it, it's okay to cast a really wide net when you're starting out. You'll talk to anyone, right? And that was in that stage. Um, I had 100 people reach out for a meeting in 2020, and only 33% of those were qualified for an ongoing engagement. <laughs> Yeah. But at that point, I'm like, don't care. I am going to have this conversation. I'll do this one-time plan and all of that, right? But then you start getting a little bit more busy. So 2021, we had 100 people reach out and we had 38% that was qualified for an ongoing engagement. So still a really high volume. 
And I love those conversations, but also my entire calendar was starting to fill up. So something that we did in 2022 was we added some of this criteria and we added to our scheduling form to say, I acknowledge the minimum fee starts at this range on a monthly basis and this quarterly. And I'd, and I'd so like they, to learn more. They had to like acknowledge in the intake form, like in order to contact you, they have to check a box that says, I realize the minimum fee is this. So it's basically like a big go, go away if you don't want to pay this. Exactly. So I felt a little conflicted with it because, you know, I love to, even if I wasn't the right fit, I love to talk to people and try to refer them out. But also I had to protect my time at that point. So we we're still able to meet our new client goals and do it with 50% less of the meetings. So I'm I'm struck by this journey though. So the like the target market, like the target market was there from the start. Like travel young travel loving young families, live a life you never want to retire from, and and all the values. Like that was that was there at launch. Like this is who we're showing up for and who we want to work with. The only distinction is you weren't as stringent about how much wealth they had to bring and how big the fee was going to be out of the gate. You had a lower minimum and you didn't put a lot of the financial metrics so you could take anyone coming in, even even smaller clients, as long as they still otherwise fit this this niche, this specialization. And then as it got going, you kept the niche, you just started raising the, the minimums and articulating more of the criteria to screen out the people who really couldn't afford you at that point. Yep, you hit the nail on the head there. And I think that's pretty typical for what we've seen for other advisors as well, where you feel okay when you're at 50, 60, 70 clients to, you know, potentially miss out on someone. But in those first three to six months where it's scary, it's really hard, uh, you want to, and it's okay to cast a wider net. But for me, in that first year, we did a lot more one-time financial plans, and we were okay to do that at that point. Uh, I actually encourage advisors to be open to that because it's okay to work with the wrong person on a one-time engagement, uh, but you want to avoid working with the wrong person ongoing and then getting to the point a year or two down the road where you felt like you made the wrong mistake. So we casted, I still think, a pretty narrow net in terms of values and demographic, but starting out, I didn't feel comfortable yet to put some of that more uh, qualifying criteria and underlying planning needs behind it. Well, but I'm struck, like just just having the, you know, the values criteria and like the 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 values niche. I mean, I think you said like 17 ongoing clients and 25 one-time clients and 81 grand of actual revenue in year one. I mean, those are monstrous numbers by by most advisor standards for first year out of the gate doing doing only advice fees, like not 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 gathering assets or generating commissions to to ramp up the revenue. So just I'm I'm struck. I mean, a lot of advisors I know will say like yeah, I wouldn't even put travel logging young families. Like if you're a human being and you have money and questions, please, for the love of all that's holy, hire me and pay me something so I can get <laughs> yes. some revenue going. Uh, and and your framing was different. Like you were, you were, you were like, you stuck with the niche, just not the financial criteria for the niche. And that seems to be what drove so much revenue and activity in the first year. Correct. And I'm fortunate that I've learned from you, other podcasts, guests, and XYPN that I knew going in, I I needed to have some type of niche. And you can have different layers of a niche. You can have a profession. You can have 
uh, demographics, you can have values, you can have, like, it really can go wide. But when you think about building a great website, if someone's going to three to four different websites, they're probably pretty similar. How are you going to stand out to them? How are you going to tell a unique message, right? Um, so I felt like I wanted to build something that I felt like was me to a certain extent. It just talked to the clients that I really wanted to build longer term. And then when you connect with them on that values level, and it's okay if someone doesn't have values, it's just for our standpoint, I was pretty open with, hey, this is what I believe about money and about life. And if you kind of believe that same thing, it seems like we're going to go into this embedded level of understanding. So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? I'd say for me, um, really, I knew things would change. um, And I felt like I was prepared for it. But I was still blown away with how much things really did change. And, you know, for me, what I really learned too was when I Wanted to stay solo in the beginning. Uh, Brene Brown has a, a framing that I love. She talks about, you know, what's the armor that you wear? And for me, I was actually learning. I was wearing armor of perfectionism, control, kind of feel, fear of failure. And for me, when that was the, the reason why I wanted to stay small, I wanted to stay solo. And when I started to uncover that and better understand it and thought, well, what's the cost of that armor? Uh, for me, it was happiness. It was freedom, it was time, and it was money. So what really surprised me was I knew things would change, but until you get into it and you start to see it and evaluate it and figure out what you love and what you don't, um, it's really just, it blows your mind in terms of how different your priorities can be. So I think it really helps to encourage to you know new business owners or even people within a firm of always stay flexible and some of those initial decisions that you have early on um, always think you know what would this look like if I had a team or if I changed past down the road so what was the low point on this journey for you I'd say there's um, one particular thing and there's more of an ongoing one low point it was just the you know psychological impact of starting a business in November of 2019. My yeah. wife also starting a business. Uh, we had absolutely zero income. Fortunately, we had cash saved up in the bank, but you know, we basically had our savings going down consistently on a monthly basis. And then March 2020 hit, and everyone knows what happened there. So, you know, you can plan for it as much as you want, uh, but until you're in the trenches and you're seeing your bank account balance going down, and you're wondering, you know, when's the next client going to come in so we can stop the bleeding a little bit? You know, it really it it's tough to go through, right? Um, you can plan, and I think it builds more empathy with the clients that we work with as well. Um, So that was one specific point, but also ongoing. I felt like, to be honest, the last three and a half years, like my business has more controlled me. Uh, It's been a real grind of long nights and weekends. And, you know, I love this. I absolutely love it. But also I feel like I've missed out on things like, you know, seeing friends and family and pursuing other hobbies. Uh, I think I've felt like the clock is ticking a little bit because I didn't want to be working this level of long hours before kids came down. So um, as you've mentioned a, a lot about the iceberg analogy, you just see the top, but below that are a lot of struggles that, that people go through. So out of curiosity on, on saving up, well, I guess there are two questions. Like, how long did it take before the bank account wasn't going down? And did you have some like set aside that you had put out, like a, a a year of spending or three years of spending or some other number to to be comfortable with this? So, how how long did it take before the account started going down? And and how much of a runway were you giving yourself? 
We were very fortunate, again, that I've, I've learned from others that we had $100,000 in the bank saved up uh, by the time that we uh, went to start our businesses and leave our job. And we identified ahead of time what was our low point. So if it got down to 30K, you know, my wife Kaylee and I would have be like, oh, crap. OK, what what do we need to do at this point? Like, what do we do? We need to work another job or, or have another income. So I believe it went down to about 50 or 60 or so about six months in and then around six months, at least we started to get to the point where income was matching expenses. But as I, I shared a little bit earlier too, we made very intentional life decisions. So we didn't have a house right now. Uh, we didn't have kids yet. So our fixed expenses were relatively low. So fortunately, you know, we were able to cut expenses and obviously no one was traveling in 2020. Right. So it's not like we were saying no to trips and, and things like that too. So what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from couple of years ago as you were getting started? I wish I knew more about uh, the armor that I talked about before of, you know, kind of being that achiever perfectionist, you know, why this is, uh, where it came from and what the cost was. I think when I better understood what was this preventing, it just felt like a weight was off my shoulders. Uh, and I think I could have been a lot more compassionate for myself. Um, I think a lot of other advisors were hardwired as competitors where we can be um, focused on the journey and focused on growth and all of that too. Um, and I think I could have just been you know, nicer to myself and, and learning some of the different tools and psychology that goes into that. Um, I wish I knew that too. And I wish I, you know, I enjoyed a little bit more about the journey as opposed to the destination, right? Uh, and really celebrating some of those wins and understanding how I'm hardwired as a business owner along the way too. So any other advice you would give younger, newer advisors thinking about launching and getting started? I'd say starting off early, um, I wish I did this. Uh, you know, I went through three and a half years of getting the, the CFA designation and um, I use 0.001% of that now. Um, so I wish instead of uh, using that time, I really used it to better understand the psychology of money, you know, the stages of change, money scripts, attachment styles, financial therapy. I think all of that is so impactful. So whether you are thinking about starting a firm or if you're starting your career, um, the earlier you can start to learn more about that, I just see it so clearly that this is where our profession's going. Um, that would give me a lot more tools early on than being able to value a futures contract halfway between delivery uh, points. So I think that's really important, but also building upon the baseline of the CFP, but also going that deeper into the, the psychology aspect. I think whether you're a firm owner or whether you are an advisor somewhere else, it's just going to help you out in life, but it's also going to help you out with clients. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And one of the things I've always observed, just the word success means different things to different people. And so you're off on this fantastic journey of building, what I think anyone objectively call very successful business out of the gate or you're you're clearing half a million dollars of revenue before your fourth anniversary. So like the business is going well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? I'd say being uh, number one, being the best, you know, spouse, future father, family member and friend that can be right at the end of the day, really remembering what matters. But on top of that, I'd say you know, maintaining control over my time and, you know, the ability to work wherever I want on whatever I want, you know, uh, pursue some of my creative passions, but also something that I didn't think I would enjoy as much of creating an environment where, you know, my team can do 
amazing work. You know, they're passionate about it. They can create their own hours, work from wherever, and also know that, you know, they're not going to miss a kid's soccer game because of the work at Experience Your Wealth. And I think that's really uh, impactful for me and something I take a lot of pride in of, of creating that for other people too. And then I'd say lastly is, uh, just providing great service to clients and really helping them break the mold of that whole nine to five, work until you're 65 and helping them take some of those dreams and aspirations that they thought they had to wait for in retirement and actually helping them do that sooner. So I'd say it, it definitely starts with personal, making sure things are good there, goes to my team and then goes to clients. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jake, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.